podcasting world. It's another episode of Core Consult RX Podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. Cole, what's up, man? Nothing much. It's good to be back. I know. It's been a minute since we recorded now. Yeah, we didn't make the week mark on this one. No, we sure didn't. I think it's been eight days. It's going to it's gonna hurt our numbers. Ah, it's going to kill us. Is, I, I blame you. It's crushing. It's all my fault. <laughs> Daggum work. We should, we should totally record at 10 o'clock, then we could do it. <sighs> You know, I was thinking maybe we, I'm could sorry, record, guys. we could record in the morning sometime. I guess it's not Oof. totally illegal. Yeah, it's illegal. <laughs> okay. I don't like to record it's, in the morning. It's totally off limits. I don't know a lot of stuff anyway, <laughs> so I really don't know before, a lot of stuff in the before morning. Before RX Coffee, then it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to RX Coffee. <laughs> if you guys haven't tried it, it's delicious. You should totally check it out. It's really good. They're not even a sponsor of us. I'm just a huge <laughs> no. fan of coffee. <laughs> it's good coffee. But, uh, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll admit it if we're not sponsored or if we are sponsored. We're, we're not. We're not yeah, we're by just, anybody. We so. just like coffee and we like to have caffeine. But um, and we think it's cool they called it RX Coffee. Yeah. I actually don't know their story. We should have them on. Yeah, we should. It'd be good. We have no guests today. It's just us. Just us. Feels like the last two months has been guest heavy. So. Guest heavy. And so we thought, you know what? Let's tackle, tackle a topic that we should do with no guests. Like yeah. tuberculosis. <laughs> tuberculosis. A couple of infectious disease, you know, basically specialists, I would say. Basically. Yeah. A non-certified specialist. Mm-hmm. Is that a thing? Here's the thing about certifications. Okay. We're They're bo- super overrated. We're board certified and uh, our board is right there behind the camera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Jokes. So, yeah. Tuberculosis today. Uh, it'll be a, a nice overview, but I think we'll hit all the big stuff. We'll be focusing more on, I guess, you know, the pulmonary manifestations and not go so much into different um, areas that tuberculosis can affect. But. Um, yeah, we were chatting beforehand about a, uh, a bill that, that may or may not have been passed in Arizona because we didn't read the whole thing. But <laughs> No, it, it passed the House. I don't know it where pass. it went from there. But, but headline-wise, uh, it's very interesting, right? It is, yeah. So I, I saw this on, uh, I think, LinkedIn originally, but it just the title of it was House Panel Approved Bill to Let Pharmacists Write Prescriptions Over Doctors' Objections. I was like, that's the way to do it. Click. <laughs> So um, that's that's an uh, interprofessional collaboration if I've ever heard it. Honestly, that's the kind of stuff we're looking for. We <laughs> want to make as many physicians mad as possible. No, so not not at all. But uh, it's kind of interesting because it was done in Arizona. Um, that's where this bill kind of started. So it's a state thing. It's on a national right, thing. right, right. But um, basically, it, it passed with five to four votes. So it, it's something that was a little bit controversial. Um, it was HB two five four eight is what they're calling it. So um, if you want to look it up, but basically what the the bullet points are was that it would allow pharmacists to do certain like rapid testing, um, like strep, flu, um, tuberculosis is listed, and basically allow them to start medications if they had a positive test um, for whatever ailment they were looking for. Um, and did I say start tests? Start prescriptions. No, you said start prescriptions for whatever test that was positive, okay. which we don't know, you know, for sure what all that entails. And we'll talk about why that'd be somewhat concerning for TB. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. So the other part of it too, was it allows a pharmacist to continue a prescription for an additional 30 to 60 days. Um, as long as the prescription is not a controlled substance. Um, the other caveat to that is a pharmacist has to notify the original prescribing physician within 72 hours to let them know they've issued a prescription. So for reference, it's, you know, the, the laws are different throughout every state. But in South Carolina, it had been that you could write a three-day um, script or whatever, emergency fill for 
uh, a patient and then you'd have to notify the prescriber and just let them know. I think it was in 2017, either 2016 or 2017, they changed it to 10 days. And so now without it being an emergency, we can change it to 10 days as long as we notify the prescriber. And I think in an emergency if we're like in a state of emergency, which happens like all the time around here, yeah, we're it's not hurricanes. Yeah, I think you can actually do thirty. Don't quote me on that. I think yeah, but I, that's I saw right. some email about that. Um, so yeah, so in Arizona, they're just saying blanket statement: uh, patients out of lisinopril, they've had a prescription for it. Then you can just do thirty to sixty days more as long as you notify the the physician. And they also don't specify, at least, again, I need to read this before I actually talk about it on a podcast, but too late. Um, the They're also making it sound like it's all pharmacists. So in a retail setting, you know, that's so what Cole and I were talking about before we stopped our conversation, because we figured we should probably put this on a recording. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of issues with the setting in which this would be taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I as a pharmacist, obviously I want to be on team pharmacy, but right. um, I also work with a lot of physicians and PAs and nurse practitioners and um, in a very different setting than a retail setting. And so I can kind of see where some of the concerns that were brought up at the right. at the meeting. Um, so, you know, and I'll kind of read through this real quick, but um, one of the physicians um, was saying that, you know, talking about the uh, 30 to 60 days, she, uh, the physician said that she was concerned that a pharmacist could restart a medication. She intentionally stopped uh, and she would not be notified for as many as three days. So, you know, that's definitely, I, I feel like, a valid concern in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, like Cole brought up before we started recording, he brought up, okay, well, you're on lisinopril. She starts them on a low dose and let's say she gives them two weeks, 30 days, whatever it may be, uh, the patient doesn't want to go for their follow-up appointment to have their, you know, renal function, their uh, serum creatinine checked or their uh, potassium checked or anything like that. And now the patient comes to you as in the pharmacy and, you know, especially in a, in a community setting, not dogging on community pharmacists at all. I was one for a while. Um, but, you know, you don't have access to labs or, or ability to draw labs for the most part. And so they come to you, you write this prescription to follow up and, you know, you end up having a acute renal uh, injury or something because the, the prescriber wanted to follow up with labs and, and maybe bump the dose up and all that. So uh, her, her point was that it can, can definitely hurt collaboration with doctors and um, create, as she put it, silos in which each will begin to in- independently operate instead of communicating about the patient. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there, there should be a big distinction between retail setting and clinic setting because mm-hmm. I'm all for, you know, hey, retail pharmacists, we know a lot and I don't think our knowledge is always utilized as much as it could be. Right. But that being said, we have limited resources where we are. So in a clinic, that that's great. Hey, I'm, I'm going to re-up your, you know, with there's collaborative practice agreements that allow this anyway. But, hey, I'm going to re-up uh, your your meds, and I'm going to walk over and tell the doc, and the doc is going to say, great, or he's going to say, wait a second, you shouldn't have done that. Why don't you give him a call, and we'll make the switch because we're all in the same office. Um, but in retail setting, just like Mike said, yeah, concerns there. So blood pressure is one. Maybe they wanted to have a follow-up appointment to increase the dose, but now the patient's going to go on that lower dose for a long time, um, or maybe the dose is too high. They want to decrease all that stuff. Um, other things, what does it apply to? Antibiotics. So let's say a patient had seven days worth of Bactrim. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm still not feeling good. Oh, well, here's more Bactrim. And I don't think a pharmacist would do that because yeah. you know, they probably need a different antibiotic. But, you know, at the same time, when things are happening fast, sometimes pharmacists just want to get 
the patient their prescription and get them, you know, get them out the door, unfortunately. And instead of going through the process of calling the doctor and verifying things and all that stuff. So yeah, we don't, we're, we're speaking from a totally, uh, uneducated place about this bill too it's just whatever we're seeing on the internet but it's it's very interesting interesting idea but i definitely think they're valid concerns yeah and you know a couple things too kind of points that i would make to the about the prescriber though is you know they they, she says that she doesn't want to hurt collaboration but i would definitely argue that there's a huge lack of respect in a lot of cases not all cases but a lot of cases um, from prescriber side, looking at like a retail pharmacist, they definitely see them as not necessarily right. <laughs> needed in the collaboration of pharmacotherapy planning. Um, so, I, you know, again, that's not a blanket statement. I know several of them that are very uh, willing to talk with a retail pharmacist and collaborate, but um, I definitely uh, can say from my time in retail, I've never, I, I didn't have too many physicians. I had a few, not too many physicians that were like calling me up for like advice. Right. Um, one, because they don't know you and right. you could be anybody, but um, two, I just don't think that that's fully set in. Now, from a clinic standpoint, I 100% would back this up because, like, if I'm in my clinic, I, I absolutely would feel very comfortable um, adding refills or starting a medication after a test comes back because I have the lab there. Mm-hmm. I can order la- I can order whatever labs I need to follow up. I can make sure that my caseworkers and the front end staff are making sure the person has a, a scheduled follow up appointment. They can see their primary care provider. And, you know, I would feel very comfortable in that setting because I have all my bases covered. And if there was something that I wasn't unsure of or needed help with, I could always go get the, you know, attending physician. So, you know, I think that that, um, yeah, I I would be probably against this in a retail setting as much as I want to be on team pharmacy. Um, And the other thing is how in the world would they work that into into workflow with retail pharmacies are so bad about pushing just these programs on pharmacists, but they're like not willing to give you any extra help. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, speaking from experience, not just talking, but speaking from experience, there's just no, no shot that there's going to be a hundred percent approval, even from pharmacists in this, because they don't want to have to deal with all the paperwork and everything else that goes into this, the testing. Cause by the time you get done testing somebody for something like this, cause it's going to have to be you. They're not going to let the technicians do it. Um, you know, you're filling out the prescription stuff. Now you got, backed up on everything else and you know it's only going to get worse so the only way that this would be reasonable is if somehow the pharmacist had in the retail setting had quick access to like a lab some type of set of labs that you knew that you were doing something in a safe way but the rapid testing yeah the only other way that i could see that working out is if they're talking more like minute clinic wise Mm -hmm. um but even then i don't think they have access to labs or anything like minute clinics i doubt are treating um, you, you know, like blood pressure for long term right. or anything like that. Right. I, I don't know. I've so never yeah, been in one, it, it's strange. If if any of you guys know more about this bill, be cool if you wrote in and were like, "Hey, you guys are morons. You should have read the bill." Uh, don't call us morons. This mean it hurts our feelings. <laughs> and you know, tell us why this is good. Because you know, I, I always want to advocate for pharmacists and uh, further what we are able to do. But I also want what we're able to do to be safe. That being said, a lot of pharmacists had a lot of concerns about immunizations when that first happened. Um, and you know, it's even though it can get kind of crazy sometimes, I think it's a good and good for the patients to be able to mm. get it in that setting instead of having to make a doctor's appointment. Um, so yeah, interesting I, thing. Another, uh, another quote from one of the physicians that was on the panel against this bill said that, uh, 
you know, things like tuberculosis testing can result in a false positive, um, which could lead a pharmacist to wrongfully prescribe medications to a patient, um, especially children. And then um, the pharmacist on the other side said that basically those fears were not legitimate and this, that, and the other. Um, And then, you know, the... Basically, the argument came down to, um, you know, things like the pharmacist doesn't have the same training as a physician, which in a lot of cases is true. Um, and But one of the physicians said that, um, you know, even at the end of medical school, you're not equipped to make a proper diagnosis um, and, and treat the patient. That's why they have intern year in their residencies and all that, which... I can understand the only thing about that that doesn't make any sense is if I'm a PA or a nurse practitioner, then I absolutely could do, could interpret yeah. that, diagnose, all that stuff. And I've had two years of training less than a pharmacist. Yeah. So I know I'm under the quote unquote direct supervision of a physician, but how often is, you know, that, that the physician like in the room with you, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So I, I definitely can see both sides. I would advocate for, like I personally in a retail setting would never start somebody on tuberculosis medications. <laughs> would be crazy. I mean, I can't check LFTs. There's just so right. many things that I would want to check for. You, you can't do so, HIV yeah, testing. So, so it looks like, um, which yeah, this is the whole reason we brought this up was because TB was included in this, which was like, you know, I mean, rapid strep tests with moxicillin is one thing. But, right. Um, flu. Flu. Yeah. TB is a totally another thing. That's a different animal. So we'll, we'll talk about that, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. Very yeah. interesting. I, I would be all for the the rapid strep and, and flu and stuff like that. But Yeah, and I was going to say, it, you know, being on the pharmacist side, it's really easy to look at this bill and say, oh, well, this is just pretentious doctors trying to hold pharmacists down and not let them, you know, they want to hold. No, I mean, they have they have valid, very valid concerns, uh, and I think it's, it's good to look at both sides. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that um, – I honestly, if nothing else, I think it actually leads on to, you know, more the encouraging more pharmacists to keep up with their clinical knowledge because I feel like that's the way the kind of world is moving anyway. Yeah. As far as pharmacists doing this kind of work, but it'll be in a clinic setting when yeah. the robots take over retail pharmacy. It's going to move all of us into primary care physicians' offices and things, and you know, I I think that. People got to be kind of ready for that and yeah, start pre- start thinking that way now. Prepare for the change. Yep. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> the robots are taking over. Elon Musk told me. <laughs> all right. So all that aside, now that we talked for 15 minutes about a political bill, which you've never done before. Yeah. Almost almost got political. I don't, I don't think we really did, no, though. No. We're just... I feel like we're very moderate. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty moderate on here. Um, so uh, let's talk tuberculosis. Let's do it. So um, tuberculosis, an infectious bacterial disease. Uh, the bacteria is Mycobacterium tuberculosis, um, obviously. Uh, but it most commonly affects the lungs. That's what we're going to talk about um, for the most part is the pulmonary part of this. Uh, but it can um, spread to other parts of the body, uh, which is kind of how they know that tuberculosis is a really old disease. Um, so for one, it is frequently called or used to be called consumption especially in europe uh, but it actually is derived from a greek term um thesis i think is actually hippocrates that um identified it and it means wasting away um or consumption like the disease is consuming you because it would describe really any disease that was like a wasting disease but tuberculosis was so common uh, that it was almost always referred to as this and in the U.S., it is not very common, 
But around the world, it's actually pretty common and rates are increasing. Mm -hmm. So there's two different kinds. Obviously, there's uh, latent TB and then there's active TB. So when we hear latent TB, that basically means that um, the mycobacterium tuberculosis, the bacteria itself, is living in the lung, but it doesn't, it's not growing, it's not replicating. Um, the person doesn't have any symptoms, they're not contagious. Um, however, it can actually advance to active TB. Um, as far as the, the diagnosis of true active TB, um, they have something called an AFB stain um, that is not necessarily specific, but that kind of shows that there's a mycobacterium species, mm -hmm. which can lead you to kind of looking at some empiric Specifically therapy. Specifically acid fast bacilli. Yeah, there you go. Just let me use my abbreviations. <laughs> okay, don't try to... You got to let everybody know what it means. Look it up, Google it. <laughs> you Google can't expect it. me to know everything. <laughs> no. Um, and then, you know, the patient's going to have symptoms. So, you know, whether or not they have chest pain, they could be coughing up blood, um, just painful, you know, breathing, you know, chill, shaking, night sweats is a very common one, like mm -hmm. chronic fatigue, weight loss, weight loss. Um, so kind of not necessarily specific, I guess coughing up blood would be a huge concern. Yeah. It's actually other than the cough, the, the coughing up blood is, um, probably the, the most iconic sign. The rest of the stuff is very nonspecific. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's usually diagnosed later than it should be because especially in the U S you're not really thinking TB. Uh, when I was on a mission trip in South Africa, uh, one patient that I didn't, you know, have to be face to face with because I was pharmacy, so I'm in the back, you know, <laughs> safe from all the diseases. Whew, uh, close one, right? <laughs> uh, but one of my friends was seeing this patient. She was working him up for like 15 minutes, and then he was like, "Oh yeah," and um, I was, I have, you know, tuberculosis. Oh. Well, good, man. No mask or nothing. So Don't need it. Yeah, don't He's need it. He's super good at wiping his mouth. So. <laughs> we're, we're pretty silent. Uh, so, yeah, in, in, um, in a lot of countries, uh, it, it spread extremely easily uh, through droplets of blood. Um, it can be airborne, um, kind of like the flu. So, yeah, it, it's one of those diseases that can very easily become pandemic, which is why if you have ever worked in the medical field um, or I think probably even gone to college, then you've probably had a TB test, right? A yes. BPD. I just had one recently. Did you really? Like three days ago. Oh, I can actually. see it on your arm. Yep. So then, yeah, it's actually showed up a little bit, which is so uh, how to go, you know, yeah. not great. <laughs> yeah, I'm on, I'm on medication now. Yeah. <laughs> Starting on some rifampin. <laughs> so isoniazid, actually. So there is, uh, rifampin's an option now if I'm resistant to isoniazid. Yeah, sure. So um, anyway, we'll get to that in a second. Yes, but, getting um, ahead of ourselves. There are uh, different, I guess, um, you know, ways of looking though at the mark, cause I do have a little bit of a red mark on my hand. I was joking cause the nurse kind of looked at it like, Oh shoot. <laughs> and so I saw our, uh, our, uh, one of our <laughs> medical directors, um, across the way when she was looking at my, I was like, Paul, get over here. It's an emergency. <laughs> and so, uh, we, uh, it was funny, but no, it's good. Bring it's, out um, the isolation chamber. Yeah. Right now. Give me a mask. <laughs> Everyone get away from me. I have to go home. <laughs> I have to go home and play Xbox right now. Yeah. So there is kind of different specifications as far as the, the results. So if somebody has um, like a greater than or equal to five millimeter in duration, you know, the raising up of the actual mm -hmm. spot, um, you know, it, it would be considered positive if the person has close contacts to recent TB cases. So if mm -hmm. I was dealing with a TB patient um, or if I had something like HIV or mm -hmm. had a transplant or anything, as far as I know, I don't have any of that stuff. So okay. I wouldn't be worried about that. Um, 
greater than 10 millimeters. Um, then I'm looking at people who are recent immigrants, if you know, from especially from countries that are more prevalent for a, for TB. Patients that are IV drug users, um, maybe they had moderate immunosuppression, um, and then you know patients that live around or work around someone who uh, could be infected. So like mm-hmm. prisons, obviously healthcare workers, things like that. So and children, children less than four, specifically. Yeah. So you know, I would probably fall into that case just because I work around healthcare a lot. Obviously, I, I thought it's because you were a child. Well, I'm, I'm at heart depends on if you ask my wife or not. <laughs> um, and then someone who has absolutely no risk factors at all would be greater than or equal to 15 millimeters. So you have to have a big old spot yeah, on so your you, arm. You'd see a big bee sting on there. Uh, yeah. And it's specifically the, the induration or the raising, like Mike said, and not the redness that goes around it. So if you're actually like, oof, this thing is, uh, this is like, you know, pimple on mm-hmm. picture day kind of situation mm, then, and you're, the pull, you're pulling out the measuring tape then it's just the raised portion yeah um and yeah so it, it's the we call it a tb test we call it a ppd uh it's the mantau tuberculosin tuberculosis tuberculin skin test tst mm. uh, and what they're injecting in there is 0.1 milliliters of tuberculin purified protein derivative which is the ppd portion uh, right into the inner surface of the forearm. It's an intradermal injection. Uh, and even after you inject, you'll see the little raised, um, you know, section. And then it would uh, increase if, you know, you had latent or active TB. And you want to read it within 48 to 72 hours. If it's been the, the past the 72 hours, you'll probably want to restart. Uh, and like we were talking about with the bill, uh, there can be false positive and false negative reactions. Um, just a couple of the reasons for a false positive might be um, if you're infected with another mycobacteria that's not tuberculosis related, um, or if somebody incorrectly administered it, that kind of thing, or used the incorrect bottle of antigen. Um, a false negative reaction, um, so it was negative, but you actually do have latent or active TB, could be if you had a recent TB infection within 8 to 10 weeks. So that's part of the reason for a two-step PPD situation. So if you were exposed and then had a PPD directly after, uh, they would catch it on the second round. Um, Or if it's a really old TB infection, uh, or if you've had a recent live virus vaccination, like measles or smallpox. Uh, So like this might be important if you're in the pharmacy setting and somebody had a a, um, TB test, you can get them on the same day as a live um, vaccine. But if you have had a live vaccine of the last four to six, or let's say in the last two weeks, you want to wait four to six weeks after the vaccine to do your PPD. Mm-hmm. And it's a false, it can give you a false, a false negative, false negative on yeah. that one. Um, and what's uh, interesting about that is that was actually a question on the BCPS exam. No way. It was. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that I'll or say, not. Are you allowed to say I'm that? probably not. Nobody reported that. <laughs> that was not a question. Good thing nobody listens to this podcast. Here's the thing, too, is I also... <laughs> Sometime, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Oops. I was not on the board exam at all. Maybe we may do some editing this time. Nope, not editing. We we stick into our no editing policy. If I go I down know. in flames, you all know why. When we were talking about I'm the taking Nap- my BCVS away for when sure. When we were talking about the NAPLEX the other day, I almost mentioned some things uh, similar to that and uh, thought better of it. Mm, oh, well. <laughs> Nobody reported me to the board. Moving on. Okay. So uh, I guess start with latent. That's more of a easier treatment regimen. Sure. Um, so there's there's a few different options you can do. Um, one of them, probably the most common, would be isoniazid, um, 300 milligrams daily, um, or you can do 15 milligrams per kilogram um, twice weekly, uh, which is a max of 900 milligrams per single dose, and you do that for nine months. Yep. Um, so that's a lot of isoniazid. Yeah. 
That's preferred for patients, especially if they're HIV positive or pregnant or children in particular. That's a full pregnancy worth of isoniazid. That, it's exactly a full pregnancy <laughs> worth if I do my math right. <laughs> so that's definitely um, probably a more common option. There's also, if some, especially if a patient cannot tolerate um, isoniazid or if they have, if you find out that the bug they have is resistant, um, you can do rifampin, 600 milligrams daily for four months, which to me, I'm like... Can I just have the rifampin? Yeah, but does it have worse side effects, you think? Probably. Liver-wise? I mean, they're all like... They all have liver They're all effect. like, man, you better hang off the alcohol during this this treatment period because your liver's going to be in, in trouble. Great. Uh, yeah, I know. Man, better not get TB. <laughs> uh, but yeah, per, people with latent infections, so if you have a patient who's latent, uh, they probably won't feel sick, probably won't have symptoms, um, but that they are infected with... Uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis, but they don't actually have t- tuberculosis disease. So the active disease is what you would consider having tuberculosis. Um, the only sign is a positive reaction uh, to the tuberculin t- uh, skin test or if you did a blood TB test, um, and they aren't infectious. So if it's latent, you can't actually spread the TB. It just means that you um, obtain that at some point in your travels or in your um, at U.S., escapades with to places where people had tb escapades yeah yeah stop having so many escapades i know Jeez, what's wrong with you treating patients and things yeah well unless you're doing that that's fine yeah (laughs) all right so um we'll move on to active tb and we'll talk about some like clinical pearls and things for each of these drugs in a second too but um active tb the uh, easiest way to kind of remember is uh the mnemonic mnemonic or acronym mnemonic um ripe so okay. R-I-P-E, like um, that's kind of the, the most common one. I checked in, because uh, I, I originally saw that in like that RX prep course book. Mm-hmm. And then I, so I had to go back and look and make sure that wasn't something they made up before I set it on here. And <laughs> it's proprietary. Co- yeah, proprietary. No, it's not. It's a very, very common uh, mnemonic. But um, so the RIPE is basically R is rifampin, I is isoniazid, the P is pyrazinamide, and then the E is ethambutol. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you would do a, you're basically two different phases. Your intensive phase is going to be all four drugs mm-hmm. for two months or mm-hmm. eight weeks. Um, your continuation phase is going to be two of those drugs, so the isoniazid and then rifampin um, daily. Sometimes they'll do three times per week um, if the bug is definitely susceptible to both of those, and um, they'll do that for 18 weeks after. Yes, so another two months. So it's six months of total treatment. Um, I'm sorry, another four, four months. Four months. I was so going to say, wait a second. Two, two, <laughs> my math's not adding up. Wait a minute. So two months of initial treatment and then four months of those other two. Right. Um, there are some alternatives depending on the situation. Um but once the tuberculosis isolate is known to be fully susceptible, um, you potentially could take a thambutol off uh, in those first two months. Uh, but generally, if that's not if you're not testing for that, then you would just go for those two months and then finish with the four. Um, an alternative to a thambutol could be streptomycin. Uh, these are all anti-tubercular agents, basically going to inhibit the replication of the bacteria and kill it, even though some of the specific mechanisms are unknown for a couple of them. Yeah. Um, and directly observed therapy uh, is actually recommended for all patients, which I think is so interesting, and I wonder how often that happens. But basically, um, like you might think of it with patients in, um, in certain psychiatric hospitals where they watch them take their meds, they want to make sure that you're taking this stuff. Mm-hmm. So 
I guess if possible, that would be great. But I mean, it's not like, which I, I guess I'll talk a little bit about, you know, uh, quarantining and confining patients. But a lot of times, I guess they're ambulatory. So would you really be able to watch them take every medication? You better. <laughs> you better make sure they're doing it. So the I think you actually have to report. I I need I should have looked this. I bet up, you but do. I'm pretty yeah. sure you have to report this to DHEC yeah. if the person has um, you know, a active TB case, just yeah. like you would with syphilis or anything like that. So right. I'm almost positive about that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So you know, like you said, you can do. You, there's some drugs that you can kind of swap out instead of rifampin. Um, there's some other uh, like rifamycin um, in mm-hmm. the class. Um, the uh, rifampin is a very strong SIP inducer as well as P-glycoprotein. Um, and so especially with drugs like um, protease inhibitors, so if a person's HIV positive and they're on a protease inhibitor, probably should get them on a better drug. But um, <laughs> if they're on a protease inhibitor, um, then it's contraindicated. You can't use it because it'll um, induce the, the, the metabolism and the drug's not going to be as effective so um which is very important for tuberculosis because um while this is a very old disease it wasn't really all that common until um, the 80s it started to pop back up and it, uh, it's frequently associated with an hiv co-infection so mm-hmm. that puts you at much higher risk of converting from latent to active is is having hiv yeah because mm-hmm. the your natural immune system for the most part with tuberculosis is able to take it and just wall it off um and, and frequently that's in the lungs. And so when they, they'll do it, if, if you have an active uh, uh, PPD or a uh, positive PPD, they might do a chest x-ray to see if they can actually see it where y- your, um, your immune system is walled off the, the situation, the infection. Um, and that's kind of why it doesn't turn to latent, from latent to active. But if you have HIV, suppressed immune system, or other conditions that, where you would have a suppressed immune system, there's nothing stopping it. and It becomes uh, much more rampant. So I think that frequently if you're seeing an active tuberculosis patient in the U.S., um, they may also have HIV. Yeah. And, and also just a kind of a thing to keep an eye out for, especially for the pharmacist looking for this. Um, if a, We always think protease inhibitors, but... Um, Tenofovir, so disaprosyl fumarate, has, if you do a drug interactions check, there's no interaction with rifampin. However, if you do that with the new version of tenofovir, tenofovir alafenamide, which is what's taking over kind of a lot of our uh, combo products and whatnot, um, the tenofovir alafenamide will come up as an absolute contraindication. Um, Interesting. I, apparently, it's something to do with P-glycoprotein, so it's not a SIP or anything like that, but it's specifically because tenofovir is available as a prodrug. So disoprosofemur and TAF are both prodrugs of tenofovir, and so the, the prodrug specifically, the alafenamide version, that is the one that's going to be interacting with rifampin. So if you have a patient and you, they're like, oh, you're good to go, I'm not on, you know, I'm on Bictarvi, you know, I'm not on a protease inhibitor, uh, we still got to watch for the TAF interaction. Which is you know it's another goes back to the bill um in a clinic totally fine in retail setting you know while you have the capability to be aware of that it's not like you're prescribing their hiv medications you can't make a switch mm-hmm. um so that they can be on these uh, uh tuberculosis medications or vice versa also if you get a positive test we can't follow up to see if it's latent or active uh, we can't do lfts to make sure their liver can even handle the dosing um you know, there's there's a lot that goes into it, but in a clinic setting, it's perfect because, um, you know, pharmacists can play an integral role in HIV treatment and can play an integral role in um, 
other antiviral type treatments like hep C and then adding on um, TB, you know, we'd be well equipped to, to be able to contribute in that situation. Yeah. Honestly, my role is so important at the clinic. <laughs> it's the most important. It's so important. I'm just kidding. They do just fine without me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even notice when I'm not yeah, there. I, I, don't even, to, I don't even show up on Wednesdays. They don't even know. Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> um, if the person does have a, um, is on a protease inhibitor though, instead of rifampin, you can use um, rifabutin is another rifamycin um, drug that you can use instead. Um, however, the interaction is still there with uh, tenofovirilophenamide because it still interacts with p-glycoprotein. Yep. So keep that in mind as well. So there are other um, drugs that you can substitute for rifampin, but it's usually rifampin or um, rifabutin is the other most common one. Yep. Uh, a couple other things about the drugs as far as side effects. So we keep referencing the liver. Um, isoniazid and rifampin are probably going to be the hardest on the liver. Um, uh, increased risk for hepatitis. Of course, any of these can cause like regular GI symptoms, regular CNS symptoms. Um, isoniazid, though, is known for peripheral neuropathy, uh, which can actually be easily managed with vitamin B6. Um, just give them 25 to 50 micrograms a day-ish, and they'll probably be all right. Um, like Mike said, rifampin is a, a strong three or four inducer and affects peak lycoprotein. Um, can also have dermatologic reactions to it, so like rash and itching might be normal, uh, but you want to keep an eye on it. Uh, also, some bone marrow suppression, specifically with platelets, so you probably want to monitor a CBC. Um, and they will probably have orange secretions. Um, so I, I think that relates to sweat and urine, right? And tears, everything. And tears, so yeah. It's sputum. all the good stuff. So it can literally be... Um, you know, staining to your contacts. If you're watching a very sad movie, <laughs> you cry during movies. I all the time. Mike is uh, full of tears. I'm, I'm extremely emotional. <laughs> those, those rom-coms just get them right at the end when the what co- the rom the rom-coms. The heck is a rom-com? Mike loves a good rom-com. Romantic comedy. Oh, Got yeah. it. I'm with you now. Okay. <laughs> you I was like, got what the me. heck is a? I thought I was thinking comic like a <laughs> comic con. I was like, I don't go to that. <laughs> I'm a nerd, but not that kind of nerd. <laughs> Yeah, you're the cool kind of nerd. Yeah, super cool. Kind of nerd that works out and, and uh, wears backwards hats. I do wear backwards hats because I don't care. <laughs> it's my hat and I'm going to wear it <laughs> while we're recording on the VR. Yeah, but that's two of the, the big drugs. Um, Ethambutol has a uh, well-known side effect of optic, optic neuritis, specifically different, differentiating red and green. Um, so you'd want to follow up with eye exams if you're on Ethambutol. Um and yeah. But I mean, when would that ever, you know, when do you ever need to differentiate between those two? I know. <laughs> Christmas, yeah, Christmas time, it becomes a real big issue. Real huge issue. <laughs> I guess, you know, this maybe, is the most dri- maybe driving. This is the most depressed, yeah, driving. <laughs> if you really, if you can't remember which, if it's top or bottom, when it means go. <laughs> right. That's a real, you, real get one of, you get one of those sideways ones like they have in, in uh, oh, Europe. Oh, no. You're totally screwed. You're done. Like, what do you do? Why are you driving in Europe? I know those? the middle is yellow, but what was was green on the right? Or That's was why green you just wait for it to turn the middle and you go. You just go on the yeah. You might get some honks. You wait for the honks, then you know you're supposed to be going. Uh huh. Yeah. Or you wait until you're t-boning somebody, and there you go. <laughs> and there's it's that. All over. There's that. But yeah, pyrazinamide also affects the liver, uh, can cause hepatitis, and can also increase uric acid. So uric your, acid's a big one for your gouty patients. Uh, be aware. Yep. If they're having a, a gout attack. Probably not great to yeah. start them right now. I want to get them some colchicine and go from there. Wait till after that's all done. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's the, the most common, you know, the, the ripe 
uh, treatment options, first line. Um, you want to go through a couple of the second line options just yeah. to list a few? Let's hit them. So second line options um, get a little bit more uh, obscure. Um, the first ones that you're going to be familiar with are the fluoroquinolones, so specifically Levo and Moxie. Um, those two seem to have uh, a lot better um outcomes as far as um, tuberculosis specifically com- than compared to like Cipro or anything. Um, so Levo and Moxie are your two go-tos if you had to use one of these. Um, and, uh, y- you know, again, definitely want to s- you use the first line options if possible. However, um, those are available if you need to um, add one in. And then they they list on there as far as like kind of comorbidities to be aware of. Uh, Levofloxacin obviously has less um, is less frequently associated with QT interval prolongation than Moxie. So probably if the person has some sort of history of uh, arrhythmia or anything like that, low mag, then you don't probably want to go ahead and use a Levo instead of Moxie. Um, yep. there, there's another drug that um, I'm actually, I've never really even seen this or heard about this dispense, but um, beta-quinoline um, is another one. Um, I looked up this because I hadn't really looked at this drug in forever and uh, forgot it even existed. But um, it's actually got a black box warning for increased mortality. Oh, that's the best kind. That's the best kind of black box warning. <laughs> so, yeah, then they compared it to placebo. They actually saw an increased risk of death. So um, the, the hmm. big thing for that is you absolutely want to use this only in cases when other effective treatment is not approved. Should also probably mention that they've done multiple trials looking at shorter treatment regimens and um, haven't been as effective as the standard six months. So right now that is the gold standard. Yeah. Um, and we mentioned streptomycin. That's an aminoglycoside. Amycasin is also another kind of obscure option, both aminoglycosides. Speaking of those, I had, I had a patient um, who said they had a lot of allergies to stuff, like all the antibiotics and things, and she was doing a gentamicin eye drop. Hmm. Um, I mean, I said it was fine. Do people commonly have allergies to aminoglycosides? I don't feel like they do. Mm, probably not. I don't know the statistics behind it, but I wouldn't think it's super common. Yeah, I guess she was okay. But anyways, I don't <laughs> anyway, really know. Anyway, she can't see anymore, so <laughs> that's not great. <laughs> but um, yeah, so th- there's several options that um, we I, we probably don't really need to go through all these because they're drugs you're most likely never going to see. But right. um, if you go on to UpToDate, there's a whole list of... Um, anti-tuberculosis drugs, like an overview, Mm -hmm. uh, review of it. And um, they have a whole list of all the second line agents you can go to. And resistant TB is becoming more of an issue, uh, especially as it becomes um, more common, unfortunately. Um, So if you, patients requiring retreatment should initially be treated with at least five drugs, including isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and then at least two, but maybe even three uh, new drugs that they haven't uh, tried or been exposed to if it if it's considered resistant. So that might pop up, especially if you're like, you know, Doctors Without Borders or you're popping over to other countries. You might mm-hmm. see this kind of thing. Never know. Never know. What else? Anything else we, want, we should go over with this? That was the big stuff. I had some stats here. Um, you know how I like my stats. I do. You do love your stats. I do love my stats. But uh, so World Health Organization estimated that 2 billion people have latent TB. Uh, and the globally in 2009, man, that was 10 years ago, 2009. Wait, wait a minute. It carried the one. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. 10 years yeah. ago. Good math. Uh, uh, it killed 1.7 million people. So Jeez. Um, that's a good bit. It's actually, I think I saw something. Yeah, it's considered uh, the most common cause of infectious disease-related mortality worldwide. Yeah, why haven't we done this one sooner? 
don't know. What are we yeah. thinking? I think it's just because we're we're spoiled in the U.S. and we we get the PPD tests, but yeah. it's pretty unusual for somebody to actually have latent, much less active TB. But around the world, it's uh, it's uh, pretty tough. Yeah, yeah. So um, there are other mycobacterium infections as well. Just mm-hmm. kind of keep in, in mind. Um, so things like uh, there's mycobacterium marinum. Um, which is a type of mycobacterium that we see in people who uh, they call it fish tuberculosis. Um, so it's pa- it's patients that um, basically like fishermen will get hooks. Uh, I actually knew a guy who got a hook. He was deep sea fishing, got a hook stuck in his hand, and um, all of a sudden he developed this really bad infection on his on his hand, and it was mycobacterium marinum that really? actually caused it. Only so, in Charleston, I know, right? But, um, or any other coastal town. Or any other place where they have fishing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but people who have like saltwater fish tanks, there's, a, there's other oh, yeah. options for it as well that huh. you can get it. But um, it's kind of the same drug class as far as the rifampin and thambital, um, but they also add on um, a macrolide as well, usually clothithromycin or azithromycin. Um, but uh, that's another one that you can see. Um, Mycobacterium leprae is... Uh, Leprosy, if I remember. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like leprosy. <laughs> um, so that's another one that you can, you know, keep keep in mind as far as mycobacterium causing. Um, and then there's uh, like avium complex, a so MAC. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that, in, especially in patients with really low CD4 counts that have mm-hmm. HIV. It's one of those opportunistic infections. Yeah. So, um, you know, someone who has active MAC, you're also going to be thinking rifampin and thambutol as well as a macrolide. So some of the same drugs will pop up for mycobacterium. Right. It's very specific agents. And like um, I mentioned before, that's one of the things that can cause a false positive for right. TB. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I personally like, you know, if you're looking for a good resource, I like the Johns Hopkins, the antibiotic guide that has a really good, uh, um, you know, breakdown of all the different types of mycobacterium infections. You can just go to pathogens type in mycobacterium and it lists all of them out and you can click each one. And, and to look up that, do you look up Johns Hopkins antibiotic guide to download the app? Cause it's not, like it's under uh, the app itself is called you central yeah, and yeah. it's, it's the Johns Hopkins um, antibiotic and HIV guide kind of all rolled into one. It's got a bunch of calculators on there and journals and it's, it's really good. Yeah. It's handy. So um, I'm blessed to, have MUSC provided to me at no charge. <laughs> so um, I don't, I don't know how expensive it is, but uh, you know, I think I have it for free, unless I just haven't gotten on there in a while since I lost the access. But I thought mm. that you could just get on there. You probably can. Maybe not. I don't know. I'll look. Come on, Johns Hopkins. Just give it Help out. Help us, us out. Help us out. There are. Help uh, out. Shout out to our main sponsor, Johns Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine? They'd be like, uh, no. We've had like three guys on here who were previous Johns Hopkins interns. Did we? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Brian. We had we had, we had Brian. We had um, John Tyrell. John Tyrell, and then mm. we had um, cancer guy. Not that he has cancer, but he treats cancer. Oh, yeah. Uh, was he John Hopkins? I thought he was... Uh, yeah, they were all there at the same time. He, oh, was he? I could have swore. Uh, you don't want Jordan. Yeah, Jordan. I, I was thinking he... Uh, I knew Cleveland Clinic. I didn't know he was um, John Hopkins. Maybe it was Cleveland. I, that I, was a while I ago. Thought I, I thought when we had John on, I was like, this is like our third Johns Hopkins guy. Maybe not. We just know so many super important it's Really people. important More people. people who just pick good rotations. Yeah, basically. So. But, uh, yeah. So... Um, that's uh, that's all we got for you on the. That's TB guys. That's TB. Another one of our. I think the last um, kind of overview we did like this was Parkinson's. This is good. I like these. These yeah, are fun. Absolutely. I learn. I learn and I remember. There you go. 
But um, cool. Uh, I guess we will figure out what we're going to talk about next time and get back with you guys. We will. <laughs> now, thank you guys so much for listening. And, um, you know, really, really appreciate the uh, support. We've gotten a lot of uh, solid ratings on on iTunes. And, uh, you know, we appreciate all of those. That really helps us out a lot. Um, you know, the one the one star rating hurt our feelings, but we're over it. <laughs> <laughs> Mike talks about it every time. <laughs> it's hilarious. So I was like, who? Oh, they, somebody hated us that much. They had to give well, one star. He's got sug. <laughs> but um, no, don't forget to subscribe. That way the podcast just automatically download and you got it right there. Yeah. Just click it's and gonna play. It's going to change your life. It will. <laughs> <laughs> Since you're already listening, you're probably, you know, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> we can't lie to you guys. But uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for the support. Please let us know if you have any questions, concerns, comments, ways that we can improve. Um, we will uh, have this episode mostly in VR. My VR camera actually just went off, just went and off. Uh, so it's not going to get the ending. Awesome. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, make sure uh, you guys check that out on YouTube. It's kind of cool. If you want to sit in the room with us, you can kind of look around and uh, hang out with us while we're talking. And uh, other than that, we will see you guys next time. Take it easy.